You're listening to a message from Third Church in Richmond, Virginia, where we believe we are called together for the renewal of all things through Jesus Christ. To learn more about Third or how you can get involved with our community, please check out our website, thirdrva.org. That's T-H-I-R-D-R-V-A dot org. Thanks for listening. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we praise you that you have broken into our space in and through the incarnation of Jesus Christ. We thank you that you reveal your mercy and love through him and that all of scripture bears witness to him. So we pray now that in the reading and preaching of your word that your spirit would illumine it, that we might be those who listen, who receive, and who respond with obedience and love. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Good morning, church family. So great to be with you guys here on the third Sunday of Advent. We've been saying the last few weeks that Advent, does anybody remember what Advent means, class? Anybody remember? Coming. Thank you. Good job, choir, but you were here the first service, so it doesn't count. Um, Yes, it means coming. And so in Advent, we are those who wait for the coming of Christ. And you could even say that we're those who wait for the not one, not two, and maybe even three comings of Christ. We, we, look, we put ourselves in the shoes of the Old Testament people of God. Imagine what it was like for them to wait and wait and wait for the coming of the Messiah the first time. And then with them and all the saints of God, we currently wait for that same Messiah, that same Jesus Christ to come again and make all things new. But you could also say that in many ways, we wait for Jesus to show up in the darkness of our everyday lives, that we wait for him to come and reveal his light to us even now. So we're people who wait. For this Advent season, we've been doing this series called The Songs of Christmas. We're looking at really the the, the original soundtrack of Christmas, which are these four songs that Luke records in Luke 1 and Luke 2. So last week, we looked at um, Zechariah's song, which is the Benedictus. Today, we're looking at the Magnificat from Mary. Next week, we'll look at the the, um, Nunc Dimittis from Simeon. And then on Christmas Eve, we'll look at the Gloria, the Song of the Angels. So today, um, for a reading, Aurelia is going to read our scripture from Luke 1. Um, so if you want to read along uh, or look in your Bibles and open them up there, I'm actually going to be referring to much of the story in Luke 1 today. So let's hear God's word, Luke 1, 46 through 55. A reading from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 1, verses 46 to 56. And Mary said, My soul glorifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed, for the Mighty One has done great things for me. Holy is his name. His mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. He has performed many mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things but has sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever. Even as he said to our fathers, Mary stayed with Elizabeth for about three months and then returned home. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Okay, we're going to start out with a quiz today, okay? So what do you think is the most popular, most widely known, most translated Christmas carol in history? Is it A, Joy to the World, B, O Come All You Faithful, C, All I Want for Christmas is You by Mariah Carey, or D, None of the Above? Say, say, what, say what you think. Just shout it out. 
Okay, most of you were wrong. Most of you were wrong. But a couple of you said D, and that's the right answer. It's none, none of the above. Um, because, guess what? It's actually our scripture reading this morning, the Magnificat. Uh, or better known, it's, that's the, from the Latin Vulgate for the first word of the song, Magnify. The Magnificat has been translated in over 2,000 languages in the last two millennia. Um, it has been whispered in monasteries, chanted in cathedrals, accompanied with dancing and African drums, recited by candlelight in small remote churches, and set to incredible music with trumpets and timpani by J.S. Bach. Why has this song reverberated down the ages? Why has it reached so many and touched so many people so deeply? Well, whereas so many Christmas carols are sort of shallow ditties about snowflakes and good cheer, this one is about transformation and revolution. It issues forth from the heart of a young woman who has been transformed herself, and it speaks of God and God's powerful work at Christmas to bring transformation and revolution. So we're going to look at those two things. We're first going to look at uh, personal transformation, that she sings of personal transformation, and second, that she sings of social revolution. Okay, so first, personal transformation. A little bit of background for those of you guys who weren't here last week. Um, we learned last week about how the angel Gabriel uh, visited Zechariah. Zechariah was a priest. He was on temple duty. Uh, he showed up there and told Zechariah that he and his wife, who were well beyond childbearing years, were going to have a son. And this son was going to be called John the Baptist. And he was going to be this long promised prophet who would prepare the way for the coming of the Messiah. You guys remember that from last week? So Gabriel, you know, we hear of him once in the Old Testament, and then he was just like twiddling his thumbs for a couple thousand years, and he shows up and has a really busy day um, because he not only visits Zechariah, he also visits Mary. Now, Mary, let me tell you a little bit about Mary. Um, scholars say that Mary was a teenager. She was probably 14, 15, or 16 years old at the time. She was a young Jewish woman. She, we know she came from a very, very poor family. Um, she probably lived, uh, we know she lived way, way out in the country somewhere, sort of off the beaten path in the boondocks. Um, we also know that she was betrothed. Um, in the ancient world, it was kind of like engagement, but a lot more formal. It was essentially like she and Joseph were married. They just hadn't started living together or sleeping together yet. So they were betrothed, right? So um, Gabriel shows up to Mary and tells her that she has found favor with God that she was about to become pregnant without Joseph, and that her son would be the Messiah, the long-awaited Jewish Messiah who would finally come and rescue God's people. Just, just, just put yourself, some of you are teenagers, right? Just, just put yourself in Mary's shoes at that moment, right? Oh, that must have felt like. I mean, she was confused, she was bewildered, she was overwhelmed, yet she consented to this. You know, let it be to me, as you say. And then the first thing that she did, we learn, is that she like got on a donkey or something and rode like two or three days to her relative Elizabeth, because what's the first thing that you want to do? You know, imagine they don't have cell phones. What's the first thing you want to do when something amazing happens to you? Yeah, you want to call somebody. You want to talk to a friend about it. And so she goes and finds someone, Elizabeth, who is sharing her experience with her, and this is such a beautiful meeting between these two women. If you can read about it in Luke 1, 39 through 45, upon seeing Mary, it says that the baby in her womb leapt 
And Elizabeth just breaks out in this joy and blesses Mary. And then Mary breaks out into this incredible song, the Magnificat. So I just think that is very striking to realize that the Magnificat is actually, it's not like Mary went to a private personal retreat to write this thing. It came out of a powerful moment of female friendship. As two women encouraged and rejoiced in one another, the Magnificat is a product of Christian community. Isn't that amazing? So getting to the song, one of the most striking things about Mary's song is how it begins, that it begins in such a deeply personal way. Look at the, the first two lines of her song. It says this, and I've actually highlighted each part where she refers to herself, her own personal soul. She says, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my savior, for he has been mindful of me, the humble state of his servant. For the mighty one has done great things for me, holy is his name. I, I just find that so striking that she's not, she's not like Zachariah. She's not just singing about like, objectively about God's history among God's people in the Old Testament. She's not talking about sort of the theology and doctrine of God. She's actually singing a very deeply personal song about her own relationship and experience of God. And it makes sense. I mean, what do you do? What do people do when they are stirred deeply in their hearts? They create art, right? Poetry, music, songs. That's why there's so much bad love poetry. I've written a lot of bad love poetry myself, Sarah. Um, there's so much bad love poetry, so many bad love songs. Why? Because that's what people do when they are stirred deeply in their souls. They want to sing. Now, thankfully, Mary is actually quite a good poet, quite a good songwriter. But in a way, this is her love song. She's been stirred deeply in her soul, and this profound experience with God has changed her. What was the experience? Well, she says it right there. Look at that second line for he has been mindful of me. The ESV says, he looked on me. Literally, it's God paid attention to me. God has noticed me. God sees me. Y'all, just, I just want you to try in your imagination to put yourself in Mary's shoes. You're a 15-year-old teenager living in poverty. You're betrothed to a man that you barely know, you are way outside any corridors of power. There's not much future for you. Your people, your own people, you and your family have been oppressed brutally by the Roman government. And, you know, she's been raised in a good, faithful Jewish family, and yet maybe Mary herself is beginning to wonder if God is even really there. After all, he's been silent for 400 years, and things for her people have only gotten worse. And so I'm guessing at this point in her life, Mary is feeling like uh, afraid and anxious and pretty alone. And then suddenly, God, bam, shows up and says to her, Mary, God sees you. God notices you. God is, is mindful of you. He loves you. He blesses you. He calls you in to be a part of his mission. And she just breaks out in song. God sees me. God noticed me. He loves me. He wants me. Her soul is singing because she personally has had a deep stirring experience of God's kindness and love in her very soul. See, before this, Mary knew a lot about God. It's obvious. She had a lot of Bible knowledge and theology knowledge. I mean, her song itself is drenched in Old Testament scripture. It draws heavily from Hannah's song in 1 Samuel. But suddenly, 
She has an experience of God. Her soul has been moved by the grace of God. She's rocked and knows in her core that she is a child of God and that God is with her and sees her. And because of that, she is prepared to face anything. Yo, know, Mary's not naive. She knows, she knows the Mosaic law. She knows what happens to young women who get pregnant before marriage. She knows that the Mosaic law calls at worst her for her execution and at best for a shameful divorce. She knows that her years ahead of her because of this pregnancy will be marked by rumors and shame. And yet, in this moment, she sings, she rejoices. She feels like she could face anything. She feels like she could do anything. Why? Because she knows that God sees her. And that God looks on her with love. And that God is with her. Her whole life is changed because of this experience of God. And my question to you is, has that happened to you? Could you ever sing a song this personally about God's love for you? Um, seven years ago this week, um, Sarah and I went to a funeral of a friend of ours, Brian, who died of cancer at age 39. And five months before his death, Brian shared his testimony in his church. And we weren't there, but I heard a recording of it later. And in this testimony, Brian spoke about his fear. He talked about the fear of all that he was having to battle in his body. He talked about the fear of leaving his three young children and his wife. He talked about, um, frankly, just the fear of the pain and the suffering that he was going to have to endure as his body wasted away. And he just said that, I don't know at times that I am I'm terrified and I am alone and I am afraid. And this is what he said. It was very striking. He said, I have all this amazing doctrine. Like, I can explain justification and sanctification. I know the Westminster Catechism. Um, I know my Bible backwards and forwards. And yet, all that stuff was doing nothing for me. I knew a lot about God, but now I didn't know if I knew God. And he said in that, and he, this is what he shared in the testimony. He said in that moment of terror, God came to him. God spoke to him. He didn't speak audibly, but he spoke in his soul and his spirit. And just God simply said this to Brian. He said, oh, my son, my son. And Brian said that just, that word changed him. It lifted the fear. It took away the anxiety, just the knowledge that God was mindful of him, that God saw him and knew him and called him his child. He said, from that moment, I stopped praying for healing and I started praying for more of God because my soul was changed. He knew that he was loved. He knew he was God's child. And because of that experience, Brian was able to face his death with unbelievable courage and poise. And so that's my question to you is like, y'all, some of you have really gone, already gone through terrible suffering, but all of us will. Every one of us in this room on our way towards death. Happy Christmas. And, and my honest question to you is, do you have the resources to face suffering and death? Because it is not going to come from religion or morality, and it's not going to come from going to church. It's not going to come from Bible knowledge. What will give you the courage and the power and the resilience to face anything is a deep and personal experience of the love of God. That's what will change you. That's what you need. Christmas is the good news of God being mindful of you, 
that he's come near to you in the person of Jesus, that he's not up there, out there, somewhere, but he's here with you, God with us. I love what Tim Keller said. He said, Christmas is the good news that God's only child became a human so that every human being can now become God's child. Every one of us. You are never alone. You are seen. You are known. God is mindful of you. And when Christianity stops being just like a belief system in your head and becomes an experience of your soul that you know that I am loved, I am seen, I am God's child, then it will change you like it did Brian, like it did Mary. So will you do that this Christmas? Will you not settle for eggnog and sing-alongs and services? Would you go for God? Would you spend time with God, meditating on God's grace, reflecting on this good news, asking God to give you an experience of his mercy? Because that's what he wants to do for you. He wants to give you that kind of personal experience in your being so that you know I am never alone. He is mindful of me. That's the first thing she sings about personal transformation. But the second thing, it's not only a song of personal transformation, it's also a song of social revolution. Here's a a fascinating fact about the Magnificat that I learned this week. In the 1980s, the government of Guatemala banned any public reading or singing of Mary's Magnificat because it was deemed too politically subversive. It was a cancion de revolucion. 100 years before that, the British colonial powers banned the Magnificat from being sung in church in India because it was perceived as insurrectionist. Now, this this may come as a surprise to you because we have so softened the message of the Magnificat over the years and spiritualized its message. But I want to make no mistake here, friends, that Mary's song is a song of social revolution and political reversals. And this is why it's been so inspiring to marginalized people over the centuries. Let me just paint the context for you of Mary, okay? Mary lived in a time when the Romans were in power. Kids, you may have learned about the Roman Empire in school. That's right here. The Ro- Rome was in power, and they had brutally taken over much of the ancient world. And because they wanted to have their hold on every part of their kingdom, they established puppet kings, puppet rulers in every part of their kingdom. And so in Judea, where all the Jewish people lived, they put on the throne this guy named Herod the Great. He was called, literally, the king of the Jews because he was king over all the Jewish people. Herod was ruthless. Um, He was famous for having people murdered in the night. He assassinated his own family members who he perceived as threats to his throne. Um, He taxed the Jewish people relentlessly. He ruled with brutal force. His shadow is very dark all over Luke 1 and 2, all over these events. And that's why Luke mentions him specifically in chapter 1, verse 5. So, Listen to Mary's song in the light of Herod's rule, okay? In verses 54 to 55, Mary sings, God has performed mighty deeds. He has remembered to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants, just as he promised our ancestors. She's remembering the promises that God made, first to Abraham, that out of Abraham's family would come a seed, a chosen one, and through him, God would bless the nations. She's remembering God's promise to David, Gabriel himself had said that Mary's son would be great. Listen to this. Will be called son of the most high. The Lord will give him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will never end. So Mary is seeing that after all of that waiting and longing and praying and through all those years of oppression and political subjugation and the apparent silence of God, God is finally answering his promises and that her son is now 
going to be the true and everlasting king of Israel. And she can't wait for him to reign. And this is what she knows. She knows for my son to reign as king, it means that other king, the false king, he's gotta be brought down. If God is gonna bring justice, then God is gonna have to bring down the bullies. God is gonna have to go after his enemies. The powers that keep the world in slavery will have to be toppled. And so listen, she sings out this verse 52. God has brought down rulers from their thrones. Well, who do you think she's talking about, class? She's talking about Herod and anybody listening would have heard it as a direct threat to Herod. She sings, God has sent the rich away empty, verse 53. Immediately, someone listening would think of Herod and all those who build, were building their wealth on the back of their oppressed citizens. When she sings that God has lifted up the, hunger, the humble and filled the hungry with good things, that's not a metaphor, y'all. She's oppressed, she's poor, she's hungry. And she and all her people were longing for the day of vindication that, that God promised he would bring. And so, so confident is Mary that God will do this, that she sings in the past tense as if God had already done it because in her mind, it was as good as done. God had promised it. God will do it. He will turn the tables of injustice upside down. He will bring down the oppressive rulers and the true king will take the throne forever. This is her song of revolution. So do you see how this kind of reframes our picture of Mary? I mean, we often think of Mary um, with all these kind of pictures that have been given to us over the years. And I don't know why. I mean, first of all, Mary was definitely not white, okay? She was brown. And here she looks like she was coming out of the spa, right? Like, like come on, man. Um, that's not the picture we kept from the Magnificat. The picture that we get of Mary in the Magnificat is more like this. Uh, you know, this is a picture recently taken of Iranian women in the streets protesting. You know, this, this is like Mary's song is a song of protest. It's very similar. If you know anything about the civil rights movement, you know that the, the, the great song of the African-American community in the civil rights movement was, we shall overcome. We shall overcome. We shall overcome someday. I do believe deep in my heart, we shall overcome someday. It was a song. It was a great song of protest and hope. And this song was perceived as dangerous to those in power, just as Mary's song was dangerous at the time. Herod, remember the guy who murdered all the baby boys he could find in Jerusalem when he found out the king of Jews was born? You can be certain he would come after a girl like Mary if he heard a rumor of her song. And so this is Mary singing a song of revolution, singing a song of the true king, the Messiah, who is bringing God's kingdom and will turn the tables on all who oppress and abuse. I love what Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote, um, who himself was executed for treason by the Nazis. He says this, the song of Mary is the oldest Advent hymn. It is at once the most passionate, the wildest, one even might say the most revolutionary Advent hymn ever sung. This is not the gentle, tender, dreamy Mary whom we sometimes see in paintings. This song has none of the sweet, nostalgic, or even playful tones of some of our Christmas carols. It is instead a hard, strong, inexorable song about the power of God and the powerlessness of humankind. These are the tones of the women prophets of the Old Testament that now come to life in Mary's mouth. Whoo! That's awesome, right? This is her song. So what, what does this mean for us, people of God? Well, I tell you what it means. It means that you better make sure you're on the right side of God's kingdom. That's what it means, right? A huge theme in the book of Luke 
is the great reversal, the upside down kingdom that Jesus is bringing and that is coming. See, we look around and we see the rich and powerful thriving. We see abusive leaders like Putin, you know, ruthlessly oppressing without any accountability. You know, I, I just took an Uber and the, um, the driver was a, a, from Ghana and he was sharing with me just how powerless he and so many of his fellow Africans feel in the face of political corruption that they just feel so unable to do anything. And yet in Advent, we proclaim that a day is coming, the day of God's kingdom, when he will bring down powerful oppressors from their throne and he will raise up all who are hungry and crying out for rescue and relief. That day will be a beautiful day for the vulnerable and the small and who all who long for rescue. It will be a day of joy for the millions of kids in child slavery. It will be a day of celebration for the millions of refugees who wander the earth without a home. It will be a day of celebration for all who are trapped in situations without relief, for all who long for rescue. But that day of God's kingdom will be a bad day for those who trust in themselves, for all who use their wealth and power for their own advantage, for all who ignore the plight of the poor. That will be a very bad day for those who ignore the true king. A very bad day indeed. And so here's the word. Here's the Advent word, friends. Repent. Repent. Turn. Make sure you're living in the kingdom of Jesus and not the kingdom of Herod. Use your power and your wealth not to amass comfort for yourself, but to pour yourself out for others, especially for the vulnerable, the immigrant, the widow, the orphan, the poor. We are God's people of the king who already work for his kingdom now, who work against evil and oppression now, knowing as the king's people, we are already a part of the kingdom that is coming. And above all, this knowledge of this, this revolution that the king is bringing calls us to become poor ourselves, not necessarily literal poverty, although the scripture has a whole lot to say about the grave dangers of wealth and the need for radical generosity, radical divestment. But certainly we're called to spiritual poverty, this knowledge that you are spiritually bankrupt and you need the rescue of God. I love what um, the Latin theologian, Latin American theologian Oscar Romero writes. He says this, no one can celebrate a genuine Christmas without being truly poor. The self-sufficient, the proud, those who, because they have everything, look down on others, those who have no need even of God. For them, there will be no Christmas. Only the poor, the hungry, those who need someone to come on their behalf will have that someone, and that someone is God, Emmanuel, God with us. Without poverty of spirit, there can be no abundance of God. Brothers and sisters, the heart of the Christian message and the gospel itself is that God comes in Jesus to rescue those who cannot rescue themselves. But to admit that takes becoming poor, becoming humble, it means repenting of pride and self-sufficiency and a life without God and saying to God, help me. I can't save myself. I can't rescue myself. I need your help. I need you to come. Come, Lord Jesus, come. Come. So that's Mary's song. Maybe not what you expected. It's a song of personal transformation and a song of social revolution. It's a song about being personally known and seen by God, and yet also a song that anticipates the day when the king will come and set all things right. Let me close uh, in this way. Um, Becca said earlier, 
our songs that we sang have said it, that Advent is a season in which we are unafraid to face the darkness, the darkness in ourselves, the darkness in the world. And let's just be honest. I mean, the darkness in the world just seems to be getting darker. And every day, it seems like there's more to be afraid of, more to be worried about, more to fear. And it can really, make, it can really unnerve a person. It can really make a person lose hope. But the Magnificat is a song for all who, like Mary, face uncertain futures and wonder how the light is going to come. I love what the Reverend Carolyn Sharp says. She says, don't envision Mary as the radiant woman peacefully composing the Magnificat. She is a girl who sings defiantly to her God through her tears, fists clenched against an unknown future. Mary's courageous song of praise is a radical resource for those seeking to honor the holy amid the suffering and conflicts of real life. Don't you need a song like that? At Brian's funeral, seven years ago, on December 9th, at the very end of Brian's funeral, we sang the final song, Joy to the World. And I will never forget it because people were singing their faces off, as Brooke would say. They were singing deeply from their hearts, and they were singing with tears streaming down their faces. And we sang, No more let sins and sorrows grow, or thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessing known, far as the curse is found. Far as the curse is found. In that moment of tragedy, in that moment of sorrow, in that moment when a husband, father, and friend was taken from us, we were singing a song of defiant protest. We were singing a song of defiant hope. We were singing in the face of evil, you are going down because the king is coming and his blessings will flow far as the curse is found, far as the curse is found. That is the astounding and revolutionary message of Christmas. Not good cheer, not sentimental feelings, not even just a moving personal message. It is the Cancion de Revolution. It is good news for all of creation that the king has come the king is coming, and the king has come again, and that evil will be defeated forever. So, dear brothers and sisters, let us sing like Mary. Let us join her song of praise and protest. Let us sing, the mighty one has done great things for us. Holy is his name. Amen. Let's pray. I just want to invite you, if you... If you long to be able to have, be able to sing so personally of God's love for you, to know that he is mindful of you, would you just ask him for that now? You can just say something like this, Lord, I don't want to live without you. I don't want to live a self-sufficient, self-trusting life. I cannot save myself. I cannot rescue myself. I need your help and rescue. Thank you for coming to me in the person of Jesus. Amen.